Spotlight won the 2015 Academy Award for Best Picture. And that movie chronicles the story of America's oldest continuously operating investigative journalist team, a team that works for the Boston Globe, and their research into sexual abuse within the Roman Catholic Church. And after years of investigation by the team, one of the things they uncovered tragically was close to 90 pedophile priests, sordid accounts going back decades of abuse and cover-up, a scandal that led there in Massachusetts all the way to Archbishop of Boston, Cardinal Law himself. And what was particularly tragic about this sort of expose was that the cardinal knew of these abuses. Even his predecessor knew of these abuses. And instead of confronting them, they rather orchestrated secret settlements for at least 70 of the priests in which families were paid to stay silent about the crimes that were committed against their children. And what of these priests? Well, many of the offending priests were were simply transferred to other posts where they were able to continue their crimes against new and unsuspecting families and children. And friends, it's, it's tragic stories, like those stories recounted in that movie, and whether they're ecclesiastical or, or even whether they're political, that cause us, I think, not only to, to question authority, but to, to actually hold authority in deep suspicion. And recent sort of high-profile stories of other pastoral malfeasance, you know, in evangelical circles, stories of, of bullying and all kinds of misconduct only fuels our suspicion and concern. And these are just some of the head, headwinds we face as we start to think about authority structures within the local church. Because I think we're prone, given such stories, to confuse authority with authoritarianism. We're tempted to confuse the abuse of authority and authoritarianism with the right use of authority. Such that it's been said by authors, and not even Christian authors, that authority is actually the most misunderstood idea in America. And yet as we come to the Bible, one of the inescapable things is that God actually has instituted authorities, both in the home, in the church, and in civil society, and he's instituted them actually for our benefit. Rightly grasped, properly exercised, they're intended by God to bring about great blessing and not grief. So how do we then think this morning about authority structures within the local church? Well, that's what the the next two weeks of this sermon series is going to be about as we think about deacons and and elders and congregationalism. And I said two weeks, if you're listening carefully, you caught that I said two weeks. Yes, because I don't have a great interest in, in redoing last week where you're trying to squeeze a lot of material into one week. So I thought I'd break out the congregationalism into a separate week. Okay, so this morning we're going to be covering deacons and elders. Next week, congregationalism. So let's begin this morning. Let's start thinking about deacons. And depending upon your church background, and I know from speaking with you, there are various church backgrounds here, uh, perhaps no background. But depending on whatever it may or may not be, you have different images that will come to mind. So maybe you, you hear deacons and you think of all the community's prominent leaders right, gathering together in suits, around a, a polished table in the church parlor. And maybe that's what comes to mind when you think of deacons. Or maybe you think of them merely as some advisory committee to the senior pastor. Or maybe you think of them as sort of the equivalent, the church equivalent of the AA, you know, Northwest Arkansas Naturals. So they are the, the sort of the diaconates, kind of like the minor league the training ground where if you excel, you actually get called up to the, to the big leagues, right? To the elder board. Maybe that's how you think of deacons. All right, but what are they? What are they? And that's the first question I want us to ask as we think about deacons this morning. What are deacons? And for that, let's, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. If you have a Bible, please open with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to be reading there from verses 1 through 7. Verses 1 through 7. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I don't have the page number in front of me. But if you just go about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way in, you'll pass the Gospels. 
And right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll hit the book of Acts. And if you're new to a Bible, just as a, as a reminder, the, the big bold number is the chapter number. The small superscripts, those are the verse numbers. And I know we have lots of visitors this time of year, so if, if you are a visitor, just note what we're doing this morning is, is a topical message. It's not typically what we do, UBC. Typically, uh, the one preaching will just take a passage of Scripture and make the point of his message, the point of that passage. But we're stepping back and trying to think more broadly about a particular topic, and namely, it's a series on the church. All right, so Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Okay, so as we open up into uh, Acts chapter 6, verse 1, we see the church is prospering. And yet as it prospers, a a problem has arisen. There's a physical inequality in the distribution of food between those Greek-speaking Jewish individuals and the Hebrews. And so that division comes up. And what's the solution? Well, in Acts chapter 6, notice the solution isn't simply to redraft the job description of the apostles and those who had served as apostles and later in the New Testament church as elders. It's not to redraft that description. Rather, the apostles say in verse 2 that it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Rather than, they, what do they do? They set aside seven, and they set aside literally those as, as, sort of, as table waiters, and the, the word there is actually diakonos. It's where we get our word deacon. They set aside seven to deacon within the body. And that's where we come up with that office of deacon. And it's a word that actually occurs three times in this, these verses, Acts 6, 1 to 7. And at its root, it means literally that, to wait or to serve tables. It means deacons serve the physical needs of others. To deacon is to serve. Now, at this point, we might be thinking, oh, man, these seven guys, they got the short end of the stick. I mean, when in Greek culture, one would honor those with authority and with leadership, right? those who would have status and prominence. And, and maybe you might think, ah, they, they're not called to that apostle office, or they wouldn't later become elders. And so, you know, again, they've drawn that sort of the short end of things. And that would have been a view common in in first century Greco-Roman world, it's actually a common view in many respects in our own day. Service isn't something exactly that we value. And sometimes we think of service and we think servile. We think that's what's characteristic of manual, menial labor. So I remember when my, uh, when my wife and I lived in L.A., and we both worked a lot, and so we'd often eat out. It may not be later at night. And we lived right near MGM Studios, and so it wasn't uncommon to get into a conversation with the person serving, and, and a conversation would often go just like this. And I'd say, hey, so, you know, nice to meet you. You know, what are you doing here in L.A.? And they'd say, uh, oh, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm studying and preparing to become an actor or an actress. Almost every time you hear the same thing. And then they would just as quickly say, and, you know, this, this gig I got, this waiting tables, it's just a temporary thing. It's just kind of making ends meet. I'm, I'm not, this isn't really sort of what I aspire to. I'm, I'm really hoping for that break, and, and, and I'll get to, to be an actor and actress. And they were, in effect, apologizing for the embarrassment, for the shame of, of waiting on a table. In their own minds, it just it reflected the fact that they wouldn't want to go home and boast to their family about the fact that they serve tables. 
or whether it's, you know, moms at home or those who clean our buildings or those who take our orders, we tend again to value as the first century did those who lead and who have power and success, who, who produce those who establish corporate empires. And yet here is where the Bible, as it so often does, it really upends our own cultural assumptions. It upends them. For Jesus actually views servanthood, which is to define this office of deacon, he views it very differently. John 12, 26. If anyone, this is Jesus, if anyone serves, there's that word deacon, if anyone deacons serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant, my deacon, be also. Or Matthew 20, 26. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, right? your deacon, same word. Jesus even actually presents himself in the Gospels as a kind of deacon. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to deacon, to give his life as a ransom for many. Servanthood, as we look through the New Testament, it's actually to mark not just some Christians, but, but all Christians. And yet it's especially to mark those who are called to serve in the office of deacon. Right? Even in Acts 6.4, the apostles are said to be servants. It's that word deacon, servants of the word. In other words, apostles, they were to give themselves over to the service of the word and of prayer so that that work would be a benefit to others. And yet this sort of more physical, the more administrative service, that is particularly to characterize these seven that were set aside, looks like as the first deacons of the church. And so here already in Acts 6, we begin to see the kind of ministry that distinguishes deacon ministry from elder ministry. So what's the difference? Well, deacons are given over more to the physical needs and to some of the administrative services of the body, whereas the apostles... Later, the elders would be given over to the service of the word and to prayer. Okay, so that, that's a little bit about deacons, but what do they do? Just a second question I want to ask, what did, what did deacons do in the life of the body? Well, we've already noted first, they're to they're serve the physical needs, some of those administrative functions within the church. But it's actually more than that, because if you stare at Acts chapter 6, that physical neglect was actually causing a much greater spiritual disunity amidst the body. And so what we see secondly is actually deacons are to promote, they're to promote the spiritual unity of the body. That's part of their purpose, part of their function, to promote the spiritual unity of the body. Now, again, this shouldn't be just unique to deacons. So if you remember going through 1 Corinthians in chapters 12 to 14, when Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, Paul commends those gifts that most edify, build up, and unify the body. Those are the gifts, he said, that we ought to seek excelling at. The more anxious a person is to devote himself to upbuilding, Paul says the more highly they ought to be regarded. Now, practically, that means, as we think about deacons, it's not good to have deacons who are territorial about, you know, their ministry. The kind of people who act more like lobbyists for their cause, because those kind of individuals won't gather folks together. They won't bring about unity, but they often just further division. That's also not wise to have deacons who are dissatisfied with the church. Now, no church is ever perfect if you remember here, you certainly know that to be the case. No church is perfect. But if, if all the deacon can see are the faults and failures of that church before him, and he's not able to see those evidences of God's grace in that body, well, then he's going to have a hard time building that kind of unity, fostering that unity that Christ intends for his church. So you can think of deacons a bit like the suspension in a car. Right? They're, they're to absorb the shocks that take place within the body. Those, those potholes and rocks that would, that would jostle us about and cause disunity, they're to absorb those shocks like a suspension in a car. They're, they're not meant to accentuate them. But a third thing I want you to see, deacons are there to support the elders in the ministry of the word and in prayer. Now, sometimes we think of deacons 
and elders like the House and the Senate. You know, you've got two separate power blocks, and they've got their own agendas. But when you read the New Testament, the deacons and elders, this is, the church isn't a bicameral legislature. We don't have two competing houses. They're not two competing bills, not two competing power blocks with two differing visions of the church. No, the deacons are there to support the ministry and the work of the elders. They're there to complement it, to come alongside them, to encourage them in that work. That's part of their purpose and part of their function. So as we think about just diaconal ministry here at UBC, I think given that the the original deacons there in Acts 6 were tasked with particular service at at a particular need, I think it's wise to do the same with our deacons going forward. So instead of having sort of a board of 20 with ill-defined roles, I think it's preferable to have those deacons where their, their duties are clearly expressed and they're, they're neatly defined. And so, for example, you could have something like a, a deacon of ordinances, those that ensure that things like the Lord's Supper or baptism, right, it's, they've been organized. We have individuals to serve them. We have the appropriate um, you know, cups and, and bread and the rest. So you can have a deacon of ordinances. You can have a deacon of parking right, to deal with the various parking needs we have. You get a deacon of hospitality, deacon of member care, those who are there to assist those who are homebound right, or, may, or perhaps widowed. You get a deacon of greeters. There are lots of doors into this place. I still get lost around this church. Well, it's hard for a new visitor. They, they park over there. They come up in the upper lot. They're trying to figure out where to go. Deacon of greeters to help coordinate a greeting ministry to help encourage visitors. You could have deacon of security or buildings of grounds or, or sound or weddings or website or women's ministry or a bookstall and a library, a nursery. I could just keep going. These are all areas of practical service that a church needs and that a deacon could function in. It doesn't mean the deacon has to do all of that ministry within that particular task. So I think in Acts 6, given the size of the church, which we know is at this point well over 3,000, it's probably unlikely that the seven did all the work. They probably organized folks around them. They gathered a team together, coordinated that team to help in the distribution of food. It also doesn't mean that deacons have to be static. You know, as the needs of a body change, inevitably so, the diaconal needs will change. The areas of service, we may not need a particular area of service in the future. We may have a new area of service that rises up, right? Changing needs means changing deacons. And friends, you know, it's possible that they're going to become much more indispensable in the future. For if you read the papers, you know there's this sort of increasing cacophony of voices that's saying that churches like ours that hold to a traditional understanding of gender and sexuality ought to lose their tax-exempt status, which would mean your, your contributions are no longer tax-deductible. And it would also mean very likely that this, this great property in the heart of Fayetteville, we'd have to start paying property taxes on. Well, if that's the case, it's not just going to be this church. It's going to be many churches that simply aren't going to be able to afford the staff that we currently have. In which case, a diaconal ministry is going to be all the more important to help fill what we might not be able to staff going forward. Okay, a third question I want us to consider. Who serves? Who serves in in this diaconate? Notice in Acts 6, they were those chosen who were full of the Holy Spirit. Now, though the nature of their ministry deals more with physical needs, it is still spiritual work. It still has a spiritual aim to it and the unity of the body. So we should seek those who are full of the faith and full of spirit. Now, Howard read earlier from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and there we also saw that that deacons are to be dignified. They're to be sincere, you know, not double-tongued, just sincere. Uh, they're, to be, they're not to be drunkards. Right? They're to be those who are honest in their financial dealings. They're, they're to hold fast to the teaching of the church. They're, they're to be the husband of one wife, he read there in 1 Timothy 3.12. Literally, that expression is simply they're to be a one-woman man. And as is the case with elders, because there's that same qualification for elders as well, the, the focus, when Paul says one-woman man, the focus there is on one's present marital faithfulness, not their past marital history. 
So that's what he's, he's pressing at. They're, he's, he's, he's asking them to take a look at their present marital faithfulness. He's not making a comment about past marital history. Sadly, it was all too common in the Greco-Roman world for men to have mistresses, sometimes multiple mistresses. It's also the case, as he writes to, uh, there to the Ephesian church, to Timothy, that many would have had perhaps divorces in their past. Now, the circumstances behind a divorce... It's possible those circumstances, they may disqualify one from serving as a deacon or perhaps as an elder, but the mere presence of a divorce in the past doesn't, in my mind, and I'm not alone in this, doesn't necessarily disqualify one for ministry. Okay, what about, what about women as deacons? I've said a few things that have raised a few eyebrows. So what about women as deacons? Because that makes, I think, a lot of modern-day Baptists squirm a little bit. I think that's largely because deacons and many Baptist churches, they function like elders and pastors. They function in more of a leadership capacity. They have an authoritative role in the life of the body. Or we view them in a more Roman Catholic sense, where, the, again, the diaconate's like a training ground for pastoral ministry. And thus, you talk about women deacons, it's like you're opening up pastoral leadership to women, which the Bible seems clearly to prohibit. But I actually don't believe the Bible prohibits women from serving. I think it actually provides for it, even anticipates it. So as you think about just the office of deacon... There's nothing expressly in what a deacon does that would prohibit a woman from serving. They don't teach the word. They don't exercise authority over the congregation in a 1 Timothy 2-2 sense. Rather, what do they do? They help to facilitate. They help to coordinate ministry, which women already do all over our body, right? Whether it's Jody or Tammy or Diana or Haley or Courtney or so many others coordinating ministry, practical ministry around the church. Second, I think 1 Timothy 3 actually speaks directly to women deacons in verse 11. Now, some of our English translations will read in 1 Timothy 3.11, their wives. And so you assume they're referring to the wives of the deacons. But the text literally reads simply, the women. There's no possessive pronoun there in Greek. And I'll spare you a detailed sort of grammatical exegesis of the text But I think the footnote in your Bibles is a better reading. Namely, the women, meaning those who serve as deacons, likewise must be dignified, etc. And of course, that reading would avoid the rather awkward reading where Paul seems far more concerned with the wives of deacons and seems strangely mute on the the wives of elders. You avoid that, that odd reading. Romans 16.1 speaks to Phoebe as a deacon. Now, it may just be referring to her service. It may also be referring to her as actually holding the office there in the church. We know the early church had deaconesses. There's actually a long history of deaconesses in Baptist life. So the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention, there's a, a W.B. Johnson, J.L. Reynolds, William Williams. These were all prominent Baptists in the Southern Baptist tradition, all who wrote treatises on the church, all conservative theologically, all recognized deaconesses in the New Testament and in the early church and often in their own churches, and they didn't see any problems with it. Now, at present, our Constitution doesn't permit women to serve. And personally, I think that's unfortunate. But while I think it's biblical, I think it's beneficial, I think it's even honorable to those women who effectively deacon already, but we just don't give them the title. I think it's all those things. I'm not at the same time. I'm not going to press the matter. I'm not going to force it. If you as a congregation aren't ready, don't see it from the scriptures, aren't ready to move in that direction. Okay. Regardless of women serving, when a diaconate, when it's functioning well, I just want to close by reminding you of the result there in Acts 6 verse 7. Acts 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Notice, if we want to see gospel ministry multiplied at UBC, if we 
want to see the word increase here, if we want to see a great many become obedient to the faith, then we must have a thriving diaconal ministry. We absolutely must have it. It's not optional. It's indispensable to the health of a church. And it's indispensable to the spread of the gospel. Okay, so that's deacons. What about, what about elders then? As we turn, let's shift. Let's think about elders for a moment. We thought about some of the various images that might come to mind for deacons. You may have images that come to mind as you think about elder. Maybe you instinctively think, you know, Presbyterian. Only, only Presbyterian churches have elders. But they're not unique to Presbyterianism. Again, common in the early church, common in Baptist and congregational churches for centuries. Now, it's a practice that admittedly fell away in a lot of Baptist churches in the 20th century, but it's one that's been recovered. Obviously, this church has elders. They're all over the New Testament. They're just patently biblical, and I think most people recognize that and see that. But maybe you, you hear that word elder and you think old. And yet, Paul writes to Timothy as an elder of the church there in Ephesus, and we know he was young. I became an elder for the first time in my late 20s. So it doesn't necessarily just mean old. Now, if you've come out of a Bible church, which is actually, when I became a Christian, it was in, it was in a Bible church. And the first 10 years of my Christian life were there in Bible churches. You might have a different idea of, of elders. Because a lot of those churches take their organizational structures kind of more out of the Harvard Business Review. They look at sort of practical management models, and, and they look to see those applied to the church. And so in the church, I became a Christian, and the pastor kind of functioned as the CEO, and he called all the shots. He would set the direction for the church, and the staff were like all the vice presidents, right? And they carried out the will of the senior pastor. They did what he wanted to do. The members were, were your loyal, committed customers. Your visitors were your potential customers. Okay, who were the elders then? Well, the elders were the board of trustees. Right? They would hire the pastor. They would provide some broad oversight to finances and to operations, and that's about all they did. But as you, as you look in the New Testament, you actually get a much different picture of what elders are meant to be and what they're to do. And just as we look first at just make some observations about elders in the New Testament, I want, I want you to note three things. First, that word elder regularly, almost always occurs in the plural. It occurs in the plural. Just think of, they don't like to be alone. They're lonely. They don't want to be alone. They like people. Acts 14, 21 to 23, you've got... Um, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas, they didn't just see that churches in those areas had a senior pastor. But in Acts 14, they actually saw that churches in those cities had elders, plural. They had elders. They wanted to see that church selected elders. Acts 20, 17, Paul speaks of the elders there in Ephesus. Titus 1.5, Paul leaves Titus in Crete. Why does he leave him there? Well, to see that elders, plural, were established there in local churches. Whenever you look at elders in the New Testament, you just regularly see them in the plural. Now, practically, that plurality is hugely beneficial. So I have plenty of weaknesses, right? Every pastor does. And a plurality of elders compensates for my defects, Right? They help to support my own judgments, perhaps to, to complement even and to supplement my judgments. A plural, plurality of elders, it actually spreads some of the pastoral work across multiple shoulders. You know, a church of this size, certainly I can't pastor adequately everyone who's here. Uh, just two more staff members can't pastor everyone who's here. You want a, you want a, a team of elders able to give that shepherding and pastoral care. But I think perhaps most importantly, having this plurality of elders helps ensure that leadership is more permanent and it's more rooted in the body. So if you just think about our own history this last you know, year and a half, two years, you know, UBC didn't dissolve when Mike stepped down because there were already a group of men who were serving established laboring among the body. And so they were there. They could carry the baton. They could continue in the work. There was that consistency that exists. And again, that permanentness and rootedness assisted the body. 
And if there's anything I think that evangelicals have learned in the past few years, it's that building a church around the personality of one charismatic figure, especially a charismatic young figure, that can be a dangerous thing to do. That can be a dangerous thing to do. You want that plurality of elders. Now, the Bible doesn't say how many. It just says, you know, effectively more than one. So I think churches are at freedom to have as many as they think would suit their needs. Well, where do we get this notion, if at all, of of a senior pastor among the elders? One who's set aside regularly to teach and to preach the word. I don't think there's anything explicit in the New Testament, but there are a few glimpses of it. So you got men like Timothy and Titus who come from outside a community to they come into a teaching and leadership role even while other elders are already in place. So there's some clearly set aside. You get texts like First Timothy five seventeen and eighteen, where some men were financially supported by the congregation in that teaching, and likely those churches couldn't support all the men who were serving there as elders, but they did support at least one, if not more. Third, the Ephesian church had elders plural, and yet Paul writes alone to First Timothy to give uh, him instruction. Timothy, it seems, played a unique role there in Ephesus. Even the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were written to the the messenger, perhaps sort of the pastor of those congregations. Okay, but how how then does the senior pastor relate to the rest of the elders? Well, I I don't know what you envision of our elders' meetings, but I don't sit at the head of the table. And I, I don't come with my personal agenda. I've got sort of one voice and one vote just like any other elder on that board. Now, as the primary teaching pastor, the other elders may at times give some deference to me. And I think normally that's, that's natural as the one who primarily brings the word and that's healthy. But, of course, that deference goes both ways. So I think it was, it was maybe two or three meetings ago where, you know, I lost, if you will. I lost a vote seven to one. I mean, they, oh, my goodness, the pastor lost a vote seven to one. And just note here. I've heard of conversations with other pastors where when they were asked what would happen if your elders contradicted you in a vote, one very prominent pastor who's sadly not pastoring now simply said, well, at that point I fire them. I think that in part explains why he's no longer in ministry. Right, so I, I lost this vote seven to one. Now, to be clear, it's not a matter where the Bible spoke definitively. We're not talking about the sort of divinity of Christ, anything of that nature. You know, we're, we're operating, as elders usually do, in those murky waters of prudence and judgment. Right? And they just, they saw the matter differently than I did. Do I think those other seven men were ill-advised in their vote? Absolutely. <laughs> but will I submit to them? Will I happily press forward, trusting in the men that the Holy Spirit has raised up and put around that table, trusting that that vote reflects God's will for us? Absolutely I will. If I can't do that, I'm not prepared to be an elder. Elders have to know how to follow and to submit to one another before they're ever prepared to lead. But a second observation in the New Testament, and that is that this notion of elder or bishop or overseer or pastor, those words are actually used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. So in Acts 20, 17, Paul's speaking there to the elders in Ephesus. And yet in verse 28, he speaks of these elders and he he calls them to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's that word bishop. To care for, literally to pastor the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So right there you've got three different words, elder, overseer, pastor, but they're all referring to the one and the same office, which is why I've joked with some of you before, you can call me Pastor Brad, but you're just as welcome to call me Bishop Brad. Without the pointy hat. All right. Third observation, elders are gifts. They are gifts. We just read in Acts 20, 28, how the Holy Spirit, it was the work of the Holy Spirit that made the Ephesian elders. 
Elders, through the Spirit, are gifts that God gives to the church. We see the same thing in Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. And he, Christ, gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Again, you see right there in Ephesians 4, elders, pastors, teachers, they're gifts. And there are a few implications here. That just simply means not everyone will be an elder. Christ gives some, not all, but some toward this office. And secondly, that means if they're a gift that Christ gives, we don't manufacture them. You know, I've been asked many times, what's sort of your elder training ministry? And I think what they have in mind is they have some curriculum that's there in a binder and you take men through it like they're widgets on assembly line and out pops on the other side this pastor ready to serve. But there's just no sense of that in in the New Testament. We ought to be looking for, for the character and the quality of a man's life, not his competency with any binder or or merely just his theological knowledge. And in this sense, we don't make elders. Churches recognize elders. We don't make them. We recognize them. Which is one of the reasons why, as we think about elders going forward, you know, if you are here, a member of UBC, and you see a man doing the work of an elder that we're about to think about, the elders want you to shoot us an email and just to say, hey, listen, just an observation. I've seen this man. I've witnessed his life and his ministry, and there's a great amount of fruitfulness from his ministry and his work. Not a lot of train wrecks and shipwrecks. Not a lot of things you have to sort of clean up. But, I mean, he seems to have really fruitful ministry in the life of the body. Have you ever considered him as an elder? And just we welcome that feedback. We want that feedback from you. Okay, but what do they do? What do they do? First, elders gather and guard the sheep. That's the first thing they do. They gather and guard the sheep. This gets to the very heart, actually, of God's concern for his people in the Old Testament. And in this sense, this is where Israel's leaders really failed miserably. Jeremiah 50, verse 6. My people, God says, have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. Jeremiah 23, 1 to 4. God promises that he will bring them back to their fold. They shall be fruitful and multiply. God says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. They shall fear me no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. And of course, that's the ministry that Jesus himself would have as the great shepherd. He gathers his sheep around his voice. He leaves some to, to go gather that one who's been led astray to bring that one back into the fold. Elders are first, they're just under shepherds of their chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And notice what did, what did Paul say in Acts 20? They're to, they're to keep watch, right? They're to guard the flocks, Acts 20, 28. Or 1 Peter 5, verses 2 to 4. Peter says, shepherd, to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's that word bishop. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful game, but eagerly. Not domineering over those under your charge, but being examples to the flock. Right? Elders are shepherds, as one pastor, I think, helpfully put it. They should smell like sheep, not like the golf course. Okay, and if, you're, if you've come this morning, though, and I recognize this is an odd series. It's, it's about very churchy things. But if you've come this morning and perhaps uh, not a Christian... And you don't, you feel perhaps a little lost, maybe a little confused in the world, maybe like the sort of world isn't all you hoped it to be. I just want you to know that there is, there is a great shepherd out there. There is a wonderful shepherd who will care for your soul, who knows what your deepest needs are. And they may be different than what you think they are. They often are. But he will come and there is a way for you to be reconciled with God. There is a way for you to know the kind of peace and fellowship and rest in God that he would intend for you. And that comes by turning away from your sins, saying no more to some of those deepest desires sometimes of your heart, and saying yes to God, yes to Christ by repenting from sin and placing your faith in him. And this shepherding work that elders are to do, well, you can first become that part of that work where Christ is your great shepherd. And you're saved from your sins. And you can be brought into his family. And if you've come as a non-Christian, that's the, that's the word I want you to hear. This other stuff about elders and deacons is great. But that's what you need to know. There is a shepherd and overseer of your soul. And he 
is glorious and he is kind. All right. But this concern for, for, uh, for eldering, well, I should say this guarding of the sheep that elders are to do, how do, how do they do that? So the guard and gather the sheep, but how do they do that? Well, secondly, they, they feed, feed them with their word. They feed the sheep with the word. That's how they guard and gather the sheep, by feeding them with the word. This was in part why deacons were established in Acts chapter 6, so that elders, at this point apostles, could continue the ministry of the word. It's why so many of the pastors that I hear coming out of your mouths, you know, some of you read Martin Lloyd-Jones, you love Martin Lloyd-Jones, or you love John MacArthur, you love his work, or James Boyce, whatever it might be. Well, what marked those men was not how they filled up their schedules by putting together a grand organization. You talk to, to John MacArthur and he'll say, yeah, Monday was staff meetings and Tuesday and Wednesday I gave myself to the Sunday service and to the sermon. That's what I did. And Thursday and Friday, I gave myself to the Sunday evening sermon. That's what I did. Everyone else did everything else. I just gave myself to the word. And that's the way it is with so many of the pastors we respect. They give themselves to feeding the sheep the word that God would have them to hear. Now, obviously, not all elders are called to do this, but it ought to be at least the practice of a senior pastor. So that's a great way to pray for me. Oftentimes, things come up during the week. They gather my attention. I don't always plan really well. You can ask the staff. Sometimes the tyranny of the urgent takes shape. And then it's Saturday, and I'm doing that work, but it's also a day with family. And so you're sort of scrambling, trying to put it all together. That's a good way to pray for me, pray for my own scheduling, that I'd carve aside that time. But this concern for the word, it also should mark all the remaining elders, right? The concern for the word in private conversations, that concern for the word in life groups and adult Bible fellowships, the lives of the elders should be so seasoned with scripture that they're able to feed the sheep. It just kind of rubs off on the sheep. But third, elders are to equip the sheep. They gather and guard They feed them and they equip them. We saw that when we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 4. Shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. In that sense, a really good elder actually works himself out of a job, if you will. By turning over various aspects of service to deacons, by discipling, 2 Timothy 2.2, by raising up others around him, especially competent teachers, he equips other sheep to do this shepherding work of ministry, which practically means your elders ought to be more concerned with their teaching ministry than whether or not everything is running smoothly in the church. It means the elders ought to be spending more time with the sheep than merely scouting out sort of the next great program. It means they need to be spending more time praying through our membership directory than merely attending another meeting. And of course, the fact that elders are to equip, that actually has implications for how we think about hiring as well. So we don't hire someone in order to hand off the church's ministry to that person. So Trey Richardson was brought on here to help and assist with college ministry and local outreach. But because he's assisting with local outreach doesn't mean that he does all the local evangelism for us. No, he equips us, assists us to do that evangelistic work. So Guy Wilcox is going to have multiple duties. Part of that will be music. Part of that will be youth. And yet, he's not sort of the youth pastor, so parents don't have to worry about pouring into and shepherding their own children. We hire staff so that whomever that staff person may be, they would facilitate and they would multiply ministry in the congregation. They would facilitate and multiply ministry, not merely do that ministry for them. That's how, that's particularly how elders especially are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. All right, but who should be elders? We asked that question of deacons. Made a few observations about elders in the New Testament. Who are they? Howard, again, read 1 Timothy 3. Many of the qualifications listed there along with Titus 1. But before you even get into 1 Timothy 3, you've got to read through 1 Timothy 2. And there we see in 2.12, for example, that, that men, that men are to be in those positions of servant leadership and teaching authority. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that. We, we want theologically thoughtful and robust and strong and educated women. 
Churches should desire those things, should pray for those things. Many women played prominent roles in salvation history. Women like Rahab and Ruth, Hannah and Deborah and Mary. And can women teach? Yes, women can be amazing teachers. They can be amazing writers. But when it comes to the church gathered corporately, the question is not one of ability. The question is one of oughtness. It's not ability, but it's oughtness. And in the home and in the church, the Bible's clear that there's to be a, a complementarity to our gendered relationships. It's why when you read the Bible, you won't find any women priests or women heads of tribes or women apostles or women kings or women elders. The Bible provides a clear and uniform picture of male leadership that goes all the way back before the fall to God's good design and creation in Genesis 2. Just notice how many times when gender issues are discussed in the New Testament, the author takes you back to Genesis chapter 2. Elders should be men. But that's not all. First Timothy 3, they should be those who aspire to the task. It's not ungodly to actually aspire to be an elder. That's a good thing. Now, it's an aspiration that ought to be checked. James 3.1 reminds us not many of you should become teachers. You know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's not an office then to be entered into lightly. Hebrews 13.17 reminds us that, that elders will be called to give an account to those sheep entrusted to their care, which is one reason why I'm so concerned about who the members are of this church. It's why I'm so anxious for that church directory so that I know, okay, who am I accountable to? Who will I stand before God and have to sort of give a reckoning of their lives to some degree? If I've never met them, how do I do that well? I want to know that. I'm going to give an account one day. But while that desire is, is necessary, it's, it's not sufficient. You've got this list of qualifications. But when you read them, it's been noted what's so remarkable about this list of qualifications is actually how unremarkable they are. These qualifications, they ought to mark, apart from being able to teach and not being a recent convert, those qualifications that Howard read earlier, they should really mark every Christian. Right? Faithful in marriage, sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy. That shouldn't be just unique to elders. That should mark all of us. So then why this list? Why doesn't Paul talk about Bible reading or, or evangelism or prayer? Well, we can't say for sure, but it seems that the point of leadership in the church is to bring glory to God by commending the truth of the gospel to outsiders. Paul highlights the kind of character that should commend the gospel to a watching world. That's the kind of character and the kind of reputation that an elder ought to have. So our task then is, is not merely to promote community leaders onto the elder board. All right, someone could be a very successful leader, wonderful entrepreneur, and they can be a terrible elder. Why is that? It's because the church isn't a business. It's just not a business. It doesn't work that way. In his book, Dining with the Devil, Oz Guinness recounts the observation of a Japanese businessman. And he's visiting an Australian. And these, this businessman says, Whenever I meet a Buddhist leader, I meet a holy man. Whenever I meet a Christian leader, I meet a manager. Oh, I, friends, I fear that's, that's true in many circles. By God's grace, let's pray that that wouldn't be true of us as a church and wouldn't be true of our leaders. But in addition to these qualifications, 1 Peter 5 reminds us elders are also, they're to be examples to the flock. All right, what kind of examples? Well, practically, you know, how does the one that you're considering to be an elder, how do they respond to the sin of others? Do they respond harshly to the sin of others? So if a, if a brother shares that he's struggling with same-sex attraction, does that prospective elder recoil in horror like, oh my word? Or do they respond with clarity and with grace? Does that prospective elder, does he invite transparency? Does he seem to grasp his own inherent depravity? Does he have a performance-based view of the Christian life? Or does he grasp the gospel of grace? Is he pointing people to the cross or merely instructing them in principles of self-discipline? These are the kind of elders, that kind of quality of life, and we could say much more, but that ought to mark those, those kind of people to be that example we're looking for. In short, we're looking for those men who model what we want our church to mature into. That's what we're looking for. Now listen, we started this whole conversation about deacons and elders with that 
topic of spotlight with that scandal in the Roman Catholic Church. But my goal in doing that was not just to pile upon further abuses upon the church. Sadly, such scandals aren't unique to them. I noted that example because I think for many, it typifies how we see authority structures, especially those in the church. We're often prone to think first about the harm they can do as opposed to the benefit they bring. Can authority be abused? Tragically, yes, it can. Perhaps you've been an object of such abuse within the church. But should it thus be rejected? Should that be our desire, as it seems to be the desire of so many today? Well, I don't think so. As one author put it, a world without authority would be like desires with no restraints, a car with no controls, an intersection with no traffic lights, a game with no rules, a home with no parents, a world without God. It could go on for a little while, but before long, it would seem pointless, then cruel, and finally, unutterably tragic. We need the kind of authority structures that God intends and that elders provide. They're Christ's gifts to the church, but not only elders. They're not the only gifts. We have to have deacons as well. And it's, it's not that the elders are superior to the deacons any more than the husband is superior to the wife. I'm not, I'm not saying deacons are like women, though if we had a few, I won't go back there. Not saying that. I'm just saying, listen, elders and deacons, they have different duties. And in the church, as in marriage, both are essential to a God-honoring, gospel-expanding church. And if we neglect the critical work that deacons are to do, disunity will develop. But if we neglect the work that elders are to do, that's when a spiritual lethargy will develop. Friends, May God and pray that God would give us more of those with a heart to serve in such ways and the character that would actually commend them to that service. Let's pray together. And Father, we thank you for the word. We have to sometimes run through and pull passage after passage. We try to make sense as best we can in a morning of various duties and responsibilities. And we pray that with these gifts to the church, gifts of elders, gifts of deacons, God, we pray that we would embrace them as you intend us to. And that you would increasingly bless us as a body, both in our unity and in our spiritual maturity through those who would serve. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.